go ahead and open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1. We have a distinct opportunity this morning to finish the section that we've been kind of taking in thirds. Um, and we're going to take uh, the time this morning to talk about theological things as we have been, especially as it relates to the Trinity and uh, what a blessing it is that God has revealed to us himself, that God has revealed himself as uh, one God, three persons, that as we confess these things with our lips, uh, the Spirit works in, in our hearts to understand them in greater ways, though we recognize there is a point in which we stop at the incomprehensibility of our Lord, and we wonder and awe and may it draw us into greater worship of him also. As we've been working through this section of, a, of Ephesians, I would remind us that uh, we're in that first section that's doctrinal and Christological, and that Paul uses the set of foundation whereby he's going to then uh, springboard off of it or fall, fall in off of it, the reality of how this affects their very lives in, in all their spheres of life and be working through this epistle under the unifying heading of the exalted Christ. And in chapter one, we're recognizing that the exalted, the heading of the exalted Christ falls under this subheading of the heavenly witness of the exalted Christ. And so here we have uh, before us Ephesians chapter one, verses three through 14. Our third part will be focusing on verses 11 through 14. But for context, and as it is an, uh, an ongoing or running sentence, I'll be reading, and please follow along as I read for us, Ephesians chapter 1, beginning in verse 3, all the way through 14. Hear the word of the Lord. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in our wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. Amen. Let us go to this Lord in prayer and ask his help. Lord, we ask you that you would attend the preaching of your word, that you would uh, bless us with understanding, that we would not just be hearers of your word, but doers also, 
that it would be to the praise of your glory alone. We ask these things in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen. Well, as I've been saying, it's important that we tackle these theological concepts and these theological topics, not just because they're addressed in Scripture, but because they're addressed in Scripture as such foundational reality to our very lives, that an accurate understanding of God in the life of a believer will lead to adoration and worship. Isn't it the desire of any person who professes to be Christian whether they're orthodox or not even, is their desire is to uh, feel more towards God, to adore Him more, to worship Him greater. Now that leads to many different conclusions for different people and different uh, settings and theological commitments whereby they feel like they need to build that fervor up from within, that, that the setting and the tone, that the preaching and the ecstatic of it is to be in such a way that it generates this but for us we're going to see that it is the Lord that has called us to engage our minds so that as the spirit works through this that it comes into the seat of our being and our hearts that we would grow in greater adoration and worship of our Lord and this is the idea when Paul opens his letter to the Ephesians with a treatise on Trinitarian operations in salvation. And this comes before he gives them practical application. In our passage this morning that I just read, uh, we recognize all three persons of the Godhead. And though we, I have it broken up into three sections, identifying each section or... or um, explaining each section as it relates to uh, one of the persons of the Trinity, as we hopefully after this sermon, we'll be able to read through it and see that in, in almost every instance, the Trinity is unfolded before us. That, that the Father, though we addressed him in verses 3 through 6, is working throughout 3 through 14. That the work of the Son in 7 through 10 that we looked at, devoted our time last time to, is the same Son in Him who are, that we are found throughout the verse or the verses. And now finally we see how the passage addresses the work of the Holy Spirit in verses 11 through 14. For Paul set out this uh, construction beginning in verse 3, that he intended to show the Ephesians that their salvation is a work of the triune God. And so when we look at the work when we looked at the work of the Father, we addressed his election, his love and his grace. And we looked at the work of the Son, we addressed his redemption, his revelation and his restoration. And now we turn our attention to the work of the Holy Spirit. And as I've been doing, I think we would do well to remind ourselves of the wise words of Athanasius. For he has said, for he is known to have said that to have approached Trinitarian doctrine, the one God who subsists in three persons, not as a problem to be solved, but as a mystery to be discerned. So we have taken time in each of these sermons to expose ourselves to the doctrinal formulations of those that have gone before us, specific, specifically those known as the patristics. 
This time period in church history covers roughly from 100 AD, around the time of the death of the last apostle, the apostle John, to about the early 7th century. But some put the end of the patristics around the mid-5th century with the death of Augustine. And I read from the Athanasian Creed a few weeks back. And a couple weeks ago, I read the granddaddy of them all, the Nicene Creed. As I mentioned, these creeds are what the early church fathers formulated from scriptural exegesis and deduction. We don't go to them and, and find in them authority in and of themselves, nor authority vested in them because of the church, but as they reflect true, the truth in scripture, is where we find, uh, is where the authority would be seated, would be in Scripture itself. And so in the same spirit of exegesis and deduction, the fathers of the Reformation set out to teach the church sound doctrine. In a series, uh, one of the ways they, they taught to teach sound doctrine was the utilization of catechisms. Catechisms is basic is just a series of questions and answers that were meant to be easily remembered as well as taught. And as we go over the the catechisms, you know, during our time, we've we've spent time in the Baptist Catechism. I've exposed you to a number of questions from the Heidelberg Catechism. We know the Westminster Catechism, the larger and shorter one. And usually when we go to memorize at least that one, we memorized the shorter one, which was actually written for children. And so we find ourselves uh, in awe of what was accomplished uh, in those early years of the Reformation. But we see that uh, catechisms were used throughout the Reformation era as a way to uh, teach sound doctrine. doctrine, some doctrine that needed to be recovered because it was lost, other doctrine that needed to be exemplified because it was held true through the darkest times of the church. And one of those catechisms, as I've mentioned, is the Heidelberg Catechism. This catechism was completed in 1563 and it was meant to serve as a tool for teaching young people, a guide for preaching in the provincial churches, and a form of confessional unity among the several Protestant factions within a certain region in Germany. The question that I want us to hear this morning and draw our attention to is question 53 of the Heidelberg Catechism. What do you believe concerning the Holy Spirit? First, that he is co-eternal God with the Father and the Son. Second, that he is also given unto me by true faith and makes me a partaker of Christ and all his benefits comforts me and shall abide with me forever. That first statement, first that he is co-eternal God with the Father and the Son. The point that is being explicated here, that the doctrinal point is that the Spirit is not subordinate in any way to the Father or to the Son. That though the Spirit eternally proceeds from the Father and the Son, He is not subordinate to. A good way of understanding this is because there can be no subordination in the being of God, for if we subordinate a person of the Trinity to another person of the Trinity, we create a division in the Godhead or a division in the being of God, and so we break apart 
what's known as the simplicity of God, which is an important doctrine which separates the creator from the creature. If you want to think about this in maybe a more simple way, you think about there are, there are two main divisions in all reality. There is creator and there is creature. We must understand that if we, if we have the Holy Spirit and the testimony of the Holy Spirit in Scripture, you can ask yourself, does the Holy Spirit fall on the creature side of that division or the creator side of that division? And we would find the testimony of Scripture if we were to take the time to see in all the places that Scripture attested to the work of the Spirit, the being of the Spirit, attributes of the Spirit, we'd find that the Spirit is on the side of creator on the being on the on the divine side and so as we as we see that that's how scripture testifies about the spirit that he's on the divine side of that divide that he is afforded then all divine attributes essential to the being of god and so without subordination though we work in terms of hierarchy and authority in this world. And so this becomes that mystery whereby we, we get to that point, and sometimes it can grow as we get older, as we study more. That precipice moves farther and farther, but eventually you get to this precipice and you go, I can go no farther. Even the, the, the genius of John Calvin said that he could only go to where Scripture could rightfully be deduced or could lead and then he would stop and let the mystery of the Godhead reign in that way. And so we may find that in a very short uh, segment in our own study and go and put your hands up and say, there's the mystery for me. Uh, But I think the Lord also would uh, call us to understand more and more of who he has revealed himself to be. Uh, it's it's a uh, lesser analogy, but if we think about our relationship to any loved one in our life, and if you're married, that, that most intimate loved one of your spouse, their desire is to be known, to be known by you, to be, to be understood. And so it is with the Lord and his creation is that he wants to be known by his creation, though we know that he is incomprehensible to us as we are finite and he is infinite we still take part in what he would reveal to us as best we may understand and then we would see it continue on in glory in the age to come but we see that the spirit is co-eternal god with the father and the son there is no subordination of the spirit though as another term we may come to understand is the eternal relations of the Godhead that we see that uh, the son, the father is the unbegotten. The son is the eternally begotten and the spirit is the eternally spirated. These, these, this language is something that we need to, to learn and come to understand for as we learn and understand these things, we find that as we hear of others uh, speaking of the spirit, We'd be guarded in our hearts and our minds from speaking falsely about the Spirit. Because if we speak falsely about the Lord, we would speak blasphemy. And though uh, all 
confessed our revealed sin to us that we confess as the Spirit works in us to confess and repent is forgiven and, and paid for by Christ. Even our presumptuous sins, those that have yet to come to know in our own intelligence is forgiven. We would not want to willingly transgress or sin against the Lord by attributing to the Spirit or saying things about the Spirit that are untrue. And so we take pains to spend this long introduction to talk a little bit about the Trinity and specifically the Spirit as a subsistence of that divine being. Not a part, not a third, not a face of it, but a full subsistence, a possession of the full being of God, whereby we're able to say that the Father is God, the Son is God, and the Spirit is God. And yet, we don't have three gods, we have one God. And then maybe I took some of you to the precipice right there, and that's okay. May the Lord continue to bless us with knowledge and wisdom. But as we address our passage this morning and we, we kind of see this undergirding of what I've explained as to how Scripture generally testifies or um, I would say uh, canonically testifies about the Spirit, specifically in 11 through 14, we're going to see that as it relates to the Spirit, He is the in, He is the promise, and He is the guarantee. And we see that he is the in as it relates to verses 11 and 12, but we can trace that back to all the in hymns of our passage and see that the spirit is the in in each of those. What do I mean when I say that the spirit is the in? Verse 11 says that in him we have obtained an inheritance. Paul's argument here is uh, the opening that would come to greater clarity in chapter 3 and 6. Because he's saying, in him we have obtained. And the first thing as we start to unfold this idea as the spirit being in, the in, is we understand what Paul is saying here about being in him. And relationally, Paul is speaking about himself and another group of people being similar or like the we have obtained. And this is the mystery that eventually the Gentiles would be fellow heirs and members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. This idea of we have obtained is used to create a temporary separation in Paul's argument between people groups, the Jewish Christians and the Gentile Christians. He, he points out the distinction. He has a we and then he'll say a you and then eventually in our passage, he'll go to our. And so we'll see Paul go, the recognizing the distinctions temporarily, temporally even in, in uh, history to where now there is no separation and where he will bring into greater clarity and we'll have time to exposit this at greater length when we approach chapter 3, specifically verse 6. Paul, continuing on, he says, we have obtained an inheritance. This obtaining is this uh, reality of obtaining of inheritance is a translation of one Greek word. 
And there are different ideas on how this should be translated, but, and I won't go into all the different options, but to suffice to say what is to be understood about obtained an inheritance is that it is to portion out by lot. It is a passive word. It's not the obtaining isn't that you reached out and you grabbed it actively, but that it is something that happened to you passively. You, you, to portion out by lot was to passively come into knowledge. This is, should carry them back to the practice of casting lots to ascertain God's will. Or at least that was one of the reasons why lots were cast. That is, they are passive in their obtaining. And not just passive, but that their obtaining, as it relates to this inheritance, is not on account of their Jewishness. The order is, but the obtaining of the inheritance is not. So the order of the obtaining of the inheritance is according to their Jewishness, but the actual obtaining of it is not. Why do I say that? Because Paul says in verse 11, in him we have obtained, in Christ. And eventually he's going to introduce non-Jewish people in relation to the same inheritance, in relation having a, the same relation to Christ. So the portion out by Lot was to be a direct um, rebuttal to any Jewish pride that though the gospel went to them first, they share the gospel in union with the Gentile believers. They share union with Christ with them. Just in the same way the Israelite tribes had no control over the land that was apportioned to them as, they, as Joshua cast lots to give each tribe their portion, so the Jewish people who were united to Christ had no claim upon Christ apart from being in him and in him alone. Calvin says that this shows us that from the first to the last, all have obtained salvation by free grace because they have been freely adopted according to eternal election. The other thing that we recognize is that there's an obtaining of something, of an inheritance. This is the other idea to note here is that there's an escalation in Paul's explaining of redemption, or really he comes back to a previous idea that he kind of uh, uh, mentally walked away from to address something else as it relates to our redemption. Because in verse 7, he said that in him we have redemption the forgiveness of our sins right the removal of the stain of sin the removal of the corruption that uh that was separating us from pre the presence of god but here not only forgiveness but inheritance is to be enjoyed something was taken away and here something is abundantly given namely an inheritance the union enjoyed in Christ brings not merely pacification, but an inheritance. God owns us as his sons or daughters so that, they, that the work of salvation brings not merely survival, but a state. 
But again, this is not on account of Paul's Jewish heritage. For the in him acts as a control here, showing the adoption is in Christ. It's not due to his circumcision. It's not due to his adherence to the Mosaic law. It's due to him being in Christ. And this by working out in time the eternal decree of the Godhead. But how is it that I'm saying that here we find an ascription to the Holy Spirit as the in? Well, we're sort of working from the presupposition of verse 13, where Paul says the Holy Spirit is the seal of our hearing and belief. It would be helpful for us to, for me to read to you 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 13, because it speaks more directly to this reality. It says, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God uh, implied the Father and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. So the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. How is this connecting to what we're talking about here in Ephesians? Well, Athanasius commenting on this verse says the following. For this grace and gift given in the Trinity is given by the Father through the Son in the Holy Spirit. Just as the grace given through the Son is from the Father, so too we cannot have fellowship with the gift except in the Holy Spirit. For it is when we participate in the Spirit, that we have the love of the Father and the grace of the Son and the fellowship of the Spirit himself. Athanasius uses this text to establish the importance of the believer's participation in the Spirit in order to experience the love of the Father and the grace of the Son. Our participation in Christ, this in him, in all the places that it mentions it, in all of Paul's writings, really, but specifically here in Ephesians chapter 1, this participation in Christ is through the Spirit. The Spirit is the one who unites us to Christ. The Spirit is the one who unites us to the love of the Father, the grace of the Son. And by that, the old writers used to say this is us participating in the divine. I mean, it's something that we don't talk about very much in our, in our very somehow, uh, you know, I don't want to I'd be more, a little more stereotypical to say straight-laced Calvinist Reformed churches where you best not smile. Stop smiling and laughing, Logan. You're breaking the rules. But if you read the old writers and they talk about this participation with the divine, this, this communion with God that generates within this, this love and adoration, this mutual uh, relationship whereby we feel by the Spirit the love of God and it works in us love back towards Him so that we find ourselves overcome at times with these realities of the love of God and the mercies that are new every day. And so this participation in Christ, that the Spirit is the in, is the one who through the Spirit 
is uniting us to Christ according to the promise of his sending. This is according to a preordained uh, giving of the Spirit. He is the promise. Specifically, if we read in verse 13, we see that uh, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Again, in all these things, Paul is trying to impress upon them that they earn nothing of this. That what they have obtained, it was obtained passively. That what has been given to them, it's, it's given through the Spirit. The Spirit even comes as a preordained decree of God, a definite plan of God where the Spirit would be poured out upon His people. Paul is not just speaking of some ethereal promise. He's speaking of the promise of Scripture. Specifically in Joel chapter 2, beginning in verse 28, it will, come, uh, it will come about after this that I will pour out my Spirit on all mankind, and your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see vi visions. Even the male and female servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days. The days referenced in, Paul, in Joel here are the latter days. Those days of the inauguration of the kingdom of God. Those, that intervening time between the first advent of Christ and the second advent of Christ. This promised spirit was promised by God through his prophets who wrote being carried along by who? The Spirit of God himself. We read in Luke 24 that the prophets promised Christ confirmed. Luke 24, 49. And behold, I am sending forth the promise of my Father upon you. There's Trinitarian doctrine right there. But you are to stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. In John 14, Christ calls the Holy Spirit the helper. The Holy Spirit was promised and has been given as a guarantee and now seals them. The Spirit was foretold and promised in both Old and New Testament revelation. The glory of the Lord indwelt the temple of the Lord in the ancient economy. Now the glory of God inhabits the Christian man, woman, and child. We see the, the, the type and anti-type there. That which was prophesied, that which was typified and shadowed in the Old Testament has now come into true reality, primarily in the person of Christ. And then with whom are what? United with him, found in him. By who? The Spirit of God. And what are the means of the reception of this promise? Paul says, hearing and believing. Hearing and believing are the means of the reception of this promise. Jeremiah 31, 33, and 34 read often, but this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it. 
and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. They will not teach again, each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. Hopefully that sounds quite similar to Joel chapter 2. Multiple people groups are addressed, that there is uh, each man telling his brother that all will know the Lord. And this knowing of the Lord comes by hearing and believing, which comes to the activity of the Spirit in salvation, which if we follow the scriptures would put the Spirit clearly on the side of the creator, the creator creature divide. He goes on the cre creator divide because he works salvation. Salvation is of who? Of God, right? There is God is the worker of salvation. And here we have attesting that the spirit is the one who works salvation. So the spirit is clearly divine. The apostle Peter in Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost proclaims that this promise had come. And that what had taken place was what was prophesied by the prophet Joel. And in verse 33 and 34 of Acts 2, he said, This Jesus God raised up again, to which we are all witnesses. Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured forth this which you both see and hear. This promise, Holy Spirit, poured upon God's people, fulfilling the promise of the coming of this Spirit. Now, we do not denigrate the belief of our Old Testament brothers and sisters, for they were united to the same Christ and participated in the same benefits. But they did so in anticipation and in connection to what happens in full flower form here in the New Testament. And so Paul in our passage says of this spirit that he is the guarantee of our possession of Christ's victory. He is the guarantee we read in verse 14. He who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Brian Chapel commenting on this verse says, God's heavenly work amidst us shows that he provides not merely the atoning sacrifice of the servant king, nor even just the heavenly foothold of the exalted son, but also the applicatory indwelling of his only begotten son. From him is truth salvation, and the Spirit. Through him is the word, the sealing, and guarantee. Therefore, to him is all glory. But Paul is not ending the imagery here. The Holy Spirit is not just a mark of God that we are his possession. The Spirit is also a deposit guaranteeing the redemption that is to come. This deposit is similar to a down payment on a house that secures our, possession, our position as the buyer or the first fruits of a crop that indicate that the rest of the harvest is coming. The Spirit is the first evidence of the full grandeur of God's completed purpose in our lives. 
The Spirit is the first evidence of the full grandeur of God's completed purpose in our lives. The other thing to note here about him being a seal and a guarantee is that he doesn't seal us. He is the seal. He doesn't guarantee us. He is the guarantee. It is the giving of the Spirit that seals God's people so that none would be lost. None would fall from the hand of the Father, that all God's sheep would come into the pasture of their Savior. Because the Spirit is the guarantee. Some things to consider as we reflect back on what we've learned this morning. Consider the end of the Spirit unifying us with Christ. To the praise of his glory. The end of God's decrees. And this is no other than his own glory. Every rational agent acts for an end. And God being the most perfect agent. And his glory the highest end. There can be no doubt. But all his decrees are directed to that end. This was God's end in the creation of the world. The glory of God was his chief end and design in making men and angels. It is said, the Lord hath made all things for himself in Proverbs 16. If all things were made for him, then man and angels especially, who are the masterpieces of the whole creation, we have our rise and being from the pure fountain of God's infinite power and goodness. And therefore, we ought to run towards that again till we empty all our faculties and excellencies into that same ocean of divine goodness. And this is likewise the end of election and predestination. This was the end that God promised in that great and astonishing work of redemption. In our redemption by Christ, we have the fullest, clearest, and most delightful manifestation of the glory of God that ever was or shall be in this life. As we consider the end of the Spirit unifying with us with Christ to the praise of his glory let us also consider the blessing of the promised holy spirit ezekiel 36 was another passage i could have gone to that prophesied and promised the spirit in verse 26 moreover i will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you and i will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh i will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. What is the blessing of the promised Holy Spirit in our very indwelling us is that we have a new relationship to the law of God. He will put his spirit within us and cause us to walk in his statutes. And we will be careful to observe his ordinances. Outside of Christ, the law condemns. The law has made none righteous, right? The law is not a savior. The law may be a tutor, but it is not our savior. But in Christ, if you're found in Christ, the law commends instead of condemns. The law commends the believer towards righteousness. And the indwelt spirit is the anointing of this life. We didn't have time to discuss this idea of the Spirit as anointing, the presence of oil in the Old Covenant. 
the presence of the dove upon Christ in his baptism. And then the reality of Christ being the Messiah, the anointed one. But we recognize that at the very least, if we reflect on that, we see that in Christ, the law commends the believer toward righteousness. And the indwelt spirit is the anointing of this life. It's the purifier, the sanctifier of us. Again, the work of sanctification is as much the work of God as our justification. Though the Lord moves in us to exercise it, it is a work of the Spirit of God in our life. Consider the Spirit as the guarantee. The knowledge that we are sealed with the Holy Spirit until Christ's coming to free us from sin should cause us to praise God. The knowledge that we are sealed with the Holy Spirit who's been given as a guarantee until Christ's coming to free us from sin should cause us to praise God. For we know that in this life we will have trial and tribulation. For we know we will be like our Savior in his suffering. And the indwelt spirit is that divine assurance that we will also participate in his subsequent glories. We, Paul is going to say that we are seated with him in the heavenly places. How is that possible if not through participation of the Spirit of God, uniting us with Christ's current glories? God's heavenly work amidst us shows that, that he provides not merely the atoning sacrifice of the servant king, nor even the heavenly foothold of the exalted son, as I read before, but also the applicatory indwelling of his only begotten son so that we would give him all glory due. And one last consideration as we reflect on this whole passage. If we could just take one step back from 11 through 14 and reflect on the whole passage. Why does Paul utilize the Trinitarian construct at the beginning and throughout this elongated sentence? Why does he make explicit a participation of all persons of the Godhead? Because by testimony of the Spirit's inspiration in the mind of Paul, we are to wonder at the inseparable actions of our triune God. Though, we, though they find in themselves appropriate terminus to the persons of the Godhead, they are in their source undivided actions of the one being, the one will of our God. One scholar rightly notes, thus the beginning of actions belongs to the Father, the establishing and upholding of all things to the Son, and the finishing and perfecting of these actions to the Holy Spirit. This does not mean they all contribute part of a work but every divine work and every part of every divine work is the work of god that is of the whole trinity inseparably and undividedly to the praise of his glory amen let us pray oh lord may we reflect on the magnitude and greatness of this doctrine of your revelation of who our God is. 
one God in three, three in one, incomprehensible. And yet, Lord, you've been so kind and gracious to give us accommodating language and words so that we may apprehend some truths about who you are. So we are not left questioning who is this God revealed in scripture? Who is this God of creation? But by your spirit, by the spirit of God, Holy Spirit, we pray.